Peter then addresses the reasoning behind the teacher's denial of the final reckoning. They say generations of God's people keep coming and passing away without seeing the fulfillment of their hopes. Where is this promised return of Jesus? Peter responds by showing how short-sighted this objection is. Look around, he says, at this remarkable universe that we inhabit. The fact that we exist at all means that at some moment in the past, God's word intervened in a dramatic way to bring something out of nothing and to bring order out of chaos, and he can do so again. And so the real question is, why is God taking so long? But Peter reminds us that our human conception of time is extremely limited. The long expanses of time through which God works don't fit neatly into the framework of our very short lives. These long amounts of time are actually a sign of God's patience because each generation is offered the chance to recognize its own selfishness, to humble itself and repent before God's generous grace. And God's grace will bring the story to a close on the day of the Lord. Here Peter draws upon the prophetic poetry of Isaiah and Zephaniah, who describe the day of God's justice as a consuming fire. Peter says, the heavens will pass away and the stoicheia will melt by fire. This is a Greek word that could refer to the elements, in which case it means the dissolution of the material universe, or more likely, it refers to heavenly bodies, in other words, the stars. That's what this word means in Isaiah chapter 34, where Peter is quoting from. And in that case, this line is a metaphor about the sky being peeled back, so to speak, before the God who sees all. And so this is why Peter says the day of the Lord will result in the earth and all its works being exposed. The ultimate purpose of God's consuming justice is not to scrap the material universe. Rather, it's to expose evil and injustice and remove it so that a new kind of heavens and earth can emerge, one that is permeated with righteousness, full of God's love and people who know and love God and love their neighbor as themselves. When we think about 2 Peter, one of the big questions that comes about in this chapter, in chapter 3, is the question that the false teachers are asking in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? Hasn't happened yet. I would imagine that for many of you, at some time in your life, you have said, Lord Jesus, please come. Right? How many of you have done that at some point in your life? have said, Lord Jesus, I'm ready. It's time for you to be here. It's time for you to take over. It's time for you to make righteousness dwell here. I would imagine this year, more people, more times, with greater intensity have said, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, we're ready. We're ready for you to come and make everything right. I was thinking about that this week and I was thinking, why do we want Jesus to come? Why do we say, Lord Jesus, come? Because we want to escape pain, right? We want it all to go away. We're tired. We're hurting. We're in pain. And we're ready for Jesus to come back. I think about that in terms of the Gorel family with Ted on life support. Um, uh, their son-in-law, and uh, the thought of, Lord Jesus, come, comes to mind. 
There's a stress scale due to change, and there have been a lot of changes this year, more changes than most of us can ever imagine. And I was thinking, that it was, and when I was in seminary, this stress scale was something that we were presented in one of my classes. And uh, I, I began to uh, look at that, and, and they would evaluate, they put a number on different stresses that we have in life. Might be a loss of a job with 75 on the scale, a loss of a loved one, 100. Uh, even Christmas is on the list. It's a positive thing, but still a change. It was 50 on the list. And so you would take and you would look at all the things that you changed in your life and then you would add up the scale. Scale uh, said, uh, said that any number over 200 is usually accompanied by psychiatric disorder. So when I first started the church, the year I started the church, I added it up, right? I graduated from seminary and I left our church. I started another church. I moved. My son was born. Start, you know, this church was started. I mean, I started looking at, I came up with a, scale, a number of 400 on the list. <laughs> hey, what are y'all laughing about? The psychiatric disorder, right? Explains a lot, doesn't it? And so you look at that and I think, you know, most times in people's lives, one person's going through it in a family, but not the other, or one person in a neighborhood, but not the other, or one person in a society, but not some others. And I was thinking about 2020 and all the changes that have happened in our world. And I would bet we're all in the psychiatric disorder category of stress, right? And so we're thinking, probably as a person, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we're ready. Because we think of it as an escape. And I'm not sure that that's the way Peter wants us to think about it. In fact, I'm confident that he doesn't. Because when you look at this, you think, well, okay, if it's not escaped, then I'm looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. He's talking about that. Jesus come, right? And so I'm looking forward. I'm not looking behind, as Paul says, but keeping my eyes forward. And so... In Psalm 16, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. You think, okay, I'm looking forward to that. I'm not looking forward to just escape. I'm looking forward to what God's going to do and being a part of that. And so looking forward. But Peter says, it needs to change now, our now. It needs to change our lives now. Looking to the future, looking to Jesus come. Yeah, you're going to escape some things and there's going to be some pain that goes away. There's going to be righteousness where righteousness has not occurred. There's also being looking forward to what being in the presence of Jesus. But he says in verse 11, and this is where the whole thing's driving, I think, in this section. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we wanting to just escape pain? Are we wanting lives of holiness and godliness that change our world now, that make a meaningful life now? You see, God gives meaning even to suffering. Suffering has no meaning to it unless God's in the picture. I mean, think about that. Suffering is just suffering. And people who are committed to enjoying their lives now, many times they're the very ones that are, are struggling whenever things go awry because they're thinking, well, I might as well end it all because this is all life is. But when God is in the picture, you know there's a way more here. And it gives meaning to suffering, even that. And so you look at this issue and you think, okay, how am I supposed to live in holiness, which means be set apart, 
Godliness, which means that I'm focused on God being my world, that I am focused on him, that everything that I do involves God. My thinking involves him. My plans in life involve him, that I don't just call him Lord, but I live for him. I don't just say Lord, Lord, but I do the things that he asked me to do. And so I live my life in holiness and godliness, and it's looking to the future that changes that, right? A person who's looking forward, they start their new job, they're in their 20s or in their 30s, you start a new job, and you begin to look at retirement, right? Because you know that at some sometime you're going to look like this, right? Not a pretty picture. You know, you do what you can, but, you know, as my dad would say, my face, I don't mind it, for I'm behind it. It's the front, folks in the front get the scare. You know, so... You know, you just kind of, you live with, but you think, okay, when I get to that point in life and I want to retire, then I need to put money aside. It changes your now. You don't spend all your money. You start putting money aside in the earliest ages so that you're ready for that later stage. And so knowing the future changes the present. Knowing that Jesus is coming back should change us in order to, instead of just living for Greg, I live for Jesus. And that God becomes central to my life. That's what godliness is all about. And that I set myself apart from the world because I, I know that the world's going to drive me in a direction. It's going to drive me in a direction that these false teachers were saying that promised freedom, but they were slaves of sensuality. And they were uh, promising that freedom came through sensuality. When you think about that, you realize it's heartbreaking to, to, to think that that is how freedom's going to come about because it doesn't. Freedom doesn't come about by sensuality. And yet many of us believe that. When we go through pain, we begin to think, what can I do to enlighten the senses? And we all have our options, right? You may take medications. You may actually take illegal drugs, uh, which some of them are becoming illegal, right? Uh, you may in be involved in sensuality, pornography. That's why people do it, because they're trying to escape pain. That's why people eat. You can see which one, uh, one of the ones I have, right? Eating. And it doesn't just go away, you know? It's, it just hangs around. And you think, we do these things to escape pain. My heart was broken this week whenever I was reading an article about Ravi Zacharias, a guy that was a defender of the faith, one of the greatest apologists of our day, brilliant man. And he's got accusers now coming out and saying that he was involved in some sensuality in certain aspects of his life. And his reasoning that he gave to these people was he was in pain and this is what he needed to do in order to... And here's one of the brilliant apologists. And he's using his brilliance to take an age-old thing that's out of Second Peter and saying, this is going to solve me of pain. This is going to set me free. I think, how can he do that? Breaks my heart. Because I know that the gospel is going to be maligned because of this coming out. And people are going to say, here's your great apologist. What happened? Well, he's human. And he failed. And freedom's not found there. And in fact, what's being done in private is now shouted from the mountaintops, isn't it? I remember seeing that in the scriptures back in the 70s and wondering how that was going to come about. Now in the, in the age that we live in, you realize it's easy to come about. It can come about all over the place. Social media, everywhere. And that's when I was looking at this passage, I was thinking, you know, we live our lives in holiness and godliness. Why? Because right before that he says, 
that the heavens will pass away, verse 10, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And I thought, I'm not going to be judged one day because I put my faith in Jesus. He took my judgment. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but my works will be exposed. You think that might be the reason why Revelation says he's going to wipe away every tear? Wow. That's a little disconcerting. I want to hear well done. I don't want to hear buckles. Hmm. Don't know about you. Right? We don't want to hear that. We want to hear well done. And I think God wants us, Peter's wanting us to understand this is what's coming. Judgment is coming. Exposure is coming. And it's not supposed to to cause us to to back off. It's it's to cause us to move forward. It's not in a sense to, to guilt us into doing the right thing, but it's just a reality of what's coming. Jesus is coming back. And so you have these guys, these false teachers, that if they want to continue to live like they are, they're denying the second coming because they're saying, well, if I deny the second coming and he's not coming back, then judgment's not going to happen and exposure's not going to happen. I'm good. I can live however I want to. And Peter says, that's not how it works. And he begins to give reasons why that's the case. We see in verse 1, he says, this is now the second letter I am writing to you. There was a previous letter. It was 1 Peter, right? And and we know from the beginning, oh, I don't know where that one came up. uh, But uh, that's an interesting slide there. Uh, I haven't seen that one before. Uh, (laughs) Well, I keep pushing this one slide. I'm trying to get the map, if you can get the map for me. If not, there it is. I pushed the map and that came up. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. How is that tricky? Um, if you look at it, you have Galatia was talked about, Cappadocia, Asia. You realize he's talking about this area. Peter is writing to the people that live here. So this is the third letter to the Galatians, right? Because you have Galatians, then you have 1 Peter and 2 Peter also written to the Galatians as well as the Cappadocians, those in Asia. And what he says is, He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You know, when you think about scripture, it's probably more important that we're reminded of truths than we're taught new truths. We always, every time I go to a passage, I think, well, people have heard this passage before, so what's something new that I can share with them that they haven't heard before most likely, right? Because I want to be interesting, and, 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 you, and I, want to, I want you guys to go, wow, that's really great. I never saw that before. But the reality is most of the Christian life is about reminding one another. And you see Peter talking about this at the very beginning of the letter. He says uh, the same phrase, to stir you up by way of reminder in verse 13. And what he says is, he says, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, which are those, which he talks about in verse uh, 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Eight qualities that we're supposed to have in our lives. He says, I want to remind you. This is right near the end. He says, as long as I am in this body, and he was in this body only a few, uh, uh, a little bit of time, maybe a few years after he wrote this letter at most. And now here he is at the end. So he's bookending his letter. He starts off, says, I'm reminding you. At the end, he's saying, I'm reminding you. At the beginning, he says, 
be more diligent. At the end, he says, be more diligent. And the beginning, he says, the word of God is profound and it's inspired by God. At the end, he's saying, the word of God is profound and it's carried out. And right in the middle, he says, this is where people mess up with this false teaching, these false prophets, believing that the promises mean that you can do whatever you want. So he says, I'm reminding you. I was talking to a guy before the first service and he said, uh, when I was sharing him, with him some of this, he said, uh, he said he was in a small group of men and they called themselves uh, that, um, I just went blank on what they called themselves. Uh, uh, I know. That was their group's name. I know. We say that a lot. Oh, you should do this. Yeah, I know. Right? Somebody tells you something you already know. I know. You know, God's word says, yeah, I know. And so it's the I know group. And I was thinking, man, that's perfect. That's what we need to be. I know. We need to share with people stuff they already know to remind them and stir them up by way of reminder. So when you catch yourself going, I know, don't roll your eyes with it, okay? Don't go, I know. I heard this a million times. Yeah, no, I'm only going to tell you another 50 times, so hang on to your seat, right? What is it that they wanted to, he wanted to remind them of? Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Well, what were those about the second coming? Daniel chapter 7 would be one of those. I mean, there's lots of them. In fact, David Jeremiah said that the uh, passages about the second coming outnumber the first coming 8 to 1. In the scriptures, think about that. Second coming is talked about eight times for every one time he talks about the first coming of Jesus. In other words, 1,845 times in the scriptures, it talks about the second coming. That's a lot. 17 books of the Old Testament mention it. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament mention the second coming. It's talked about a lot. Daniel talks about it in Daniel 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We find from Jude 14 and 15, it talks about the fact that Enoch talked about uh, the coming, and when he said, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. In Zechariah 14, 4, it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in, on a day of battle. And on that feet, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split from, in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. He's coming. The prophets talk about it. He says, remember these predictions, these prophecies. Jesus, in referring to Zechariah and others in Matthew 24, says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he talks about that further in the sermon, uh, the sermon that he had on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. That's the reason that the author of Hebrews in 9.27 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming to bring his bride. 
And those who have responded in Jesus Christ, that have put their faith in Christ, are the bride of Christ. The church is his bride and the people are the church. And so you, you see that here he says, remember these things. Remember that Jesus is coming. The prophets predicted it's happening. He says, in the commandment of the Lord and Savior, through your apostles, and you think, your apostles, apparently he's referring to those apostles that had visited these places. We know Paul was there. We know Peter was there and others. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And you see that also in the Old Testament. You see this scoffing found in Isaiah 5, 9. Woe to those who say, talking to, about the Lord, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Well, that's pretty much what he, they're saying here. It needs to happen faster. Jeremiah 17, behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. So they're questioning, they're scoffing. It's not going to happen. In Peter's day, they will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They use an argument, an age-old argument, uniformitarianism, to disprove the coming of Christ. That's an argument that's been used by a lot even in our own day. And the argument goes like this, that everything has to happen in a uniform and consistent way, and therefore no miracles of God can occur. In fact, deists believed this back in the 1700s, that no miracles can therefore occur because they'll disrupt nature. The failure of deism was that um, one argument. So what about creation? That's a pretty big miracle. You're saying God can do creation and he can't do anything else? That's Peter's argument too. The consistent, the uniform thing is the faithfulness of our God. Not necessarily that our world and nature has to be consistent and uniform. God can intervene anytime he so chooses he can do whatever he wants to do. And, and Peter's saying they're deliberately overlooking this. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook the fact. It's intentional. It's not a mistake. It's not something that, oh, they didn't know or an oops. They deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water, through water. What? By the word of God. So he brings up the whole creation argument that creation happened and it was God's word that brought these things about. God spoke and they happened. God said and it was so. God declared and the miracle of creation came about. That's why there's something rather than nothing because something has always existed that something had intelligence and therefore God. God has always been here. And when he spoke, the worlds came into existence. And there he brings up again this idea of the importance of the word of God. This is not just a made-up story as he talks about in chapter 1 and verse 16. It's not a cleverly devised myth. Creation occurs. The fact that you exist proves it to be so. And that by means of these... I think he's talking about the word of God again. The world, 
that then existed was diluged with water and perished. So the flood. So he brings up this idea of the flood, that the flood, uh, the, this, this idea of the flood, the idea of creation, all is his proof that the promise of his coming is true. So he gives the predictions of the apostles and then he gives evidence to that. Written evidence, the word of God, and then empirical evidence, the creation itself. He goes on and says, but by the same word. So you notice that the word, he's, he's brought that up a lot. Promise of his coming in verse 4. Word of God in verse 5. Same word in verse 7. Uh, and you see him uh, going on. You'll see it uh, as well later in this passage. It says, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So his two arguments are looking in the, in the past at creation looking forward to the future of when things are going to change, when things are going to become different. Now, there are those that would hold that, uh, that what Peter's talking about, and it sure seems like he's talking about it, that the world and all that's in it's just going to be wiped out, destroyed, annihilated. Because he uses some very serious language when he talks about the heavens passing away in a roar uh, and the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved. And so it looks like, you know, this destruction. You saw in the Bible project, they gave the two options, annihilation or a metaphor. And, and it, they took the metaphor route, right? So they gave you those two options. And so you wonder, well, why do they, why do they even consider the other option based on his language that he has here? One of the things that helps you with that is uh, what Paul says in, in, in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans and in chapter 8, Paul talks about creation. In fact, there's three groanings that take place. Creation groaning, we ourselves groaning, and the spirit groaning. You see that in the passage in Romans 8. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And, and you think, okay, so what is that, what is he talking about? And so you back up a little bit in that passage uh, and you go say um, uh, to verse 18, that'd be very appropriate. It says, for I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Exactly what Peter's talking about. You're going through suffering now. You're facing suffering in 2020. Guess what? The glory is going to be incredible. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It personifies creation. Verse 20, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That doesn't sound like destruction and burned up, does it? When you let scripture interpret scripture, you understand this one and you say, okay, creation somehow going to be maybe restored. And so you come back to this one and think, okay, so how are we supposed to understand this? That's why they camped on the word, the Greek word stoicheia, because it seems to indicate that maybe burned up is not necessarily exactly the way it's going to occur. He goes on and says in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact. So he says, don't overlook that. But in earlier he had said, don't deliberately overlook this other fact. Don't deliberately overlook creation. But he says, don't miss this, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. I want to stop there. 
Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say a day of the Lord is a thousand years. He's not making an equation here. It says is as. That's when you have the word like or as, you know you're dealing with a figure of speech called simile. So he's using a simile here. He's making a comparison of a day and a thousand years. And what's his purpose? I know that some would look at that and they would say, oh, this helps us with the uh, seven days of creation, that they're not really a day, they're really a thousand years because of this passage. And therefore, it took 7,000 years for God to create all things, not just seven days. That doesn't really solve the evolution issue. Because most who hold evolution say it takes more time than 7,000 years for evolution to occur. So you don't solve the issue. So you come back to this passage and you go, so what is he saying here? He's saying God is outside of time. Time is not the same for God as it is for us. We may have a day. For God, it's like a 1,000 years. God can accomplish in a day what might take a 1,000 years for us to do. Or if we could even do it. And so you realize that he's, you know, when, and here's the, here's the interesting thing about this. You look at what they're asking, where's the promise of his coming? Now think about when this book was written, around 64, 68 AD. When did Jesus die? About 33 AD. So only 30 years later, they're already asking the question, how impatient are these folks, right? Now we've got 2,000 years and we could say, hey, it's been 2,000 years, Lord. And God goes, two days right? It's not as long as you think. So the question is, as they brought up in the video, so the real question is, why are you taking so stinking long for this stuff? We want it to happen now. We're ready for Jesus to come back. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, they were already asking the question, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 6, Jesus said, that's not for you to know. Table that one. Here's what you need to know. Go to Jerusalem. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remotest part of the earth. That's what you need to focus on. That's what we need to focus on. Because that's what he says his reason for waiting is. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, God's time, different than our time. We think slow. He's not thinking slow. Here's what he's thinking. But is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God waits. He waits so that we as a world will come to him. So that people who are waiting to come to him will come to him. He wants to give them time to be able to respond to the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. And that a person puts their faith in him. And when they do, they are not condemned. That their sins are taken care of. That they will not come under judgment. That they will inherit heaven. You think all these things simply by believing in Jesus? Yeah, that's it. So many people think of the Christian life as due. Jesus thinks of it as done. It is finished. He has taken care of everything that we need. And so we're not working in order to earn God's favor. We have God's favor. We're working because we have God's favor. And now we want to live for him. We call him Lord. And so now we want to live for him. We want to live in holiness and godliness. That's how Christians live. That he's our focus in life, not us our focus in life. And it changes things. It's also a very exciting way to live, by the way. Because you never know what the next day will bring. Lord, what do we have for, for today? 
And it's not like, oh, I'll take option A and skip option B and take option C. No, 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 you take it all. God, what do you want for me today? I will follow you wherever you ask me to go. The Lord's not slow about his promise. He's patient. He wants us to be those who share the word. How do I know that? Because in that section where it says holiness and godliness, verse 11, he says, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And then he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. I almost called this series instead of standing on God's promises, waiting on God's promises. But I thought, well, you know, waiting sounds very passive. You know, waiting, okay, God, whenever, you know, come on, right? That's what we think. No, waiting, actively waiting is a whole lot different than passively waiting. How do I know that? Because the very next thing he says, and hastening. What? Hastening? How do I I hasten the coming day of God? I'm ready, right? I was talking to somebody between services and they said they they had uh, uh, heard from a a missionary from India and and, and they were praying together and, and the person finished their prayer and said, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And the missionary looked up after the prayer and said, we need to do it faster. (laughs) We need to reach people faster, right? We need to hasten the day because that's what we're supposed to do. So how do I hasten the day? I share my faith. How do I I hasten the day? I share with people who don't know Jesus, hey, you need to come quickly to Jesus because I'm ready to go. I'm ready for Jesus to come back, right? So I'm sharing with you and I love you, but I really, I'm thinking of myself and I just want Jesus to come back and save me from all my pain, right? No, that's not it. It's, I want to hasten the day because I love Jesus. I can't wait to see him. I want to hasten the day, and so I want to make sure that you know Jesus as much of your life as possible because he makes a difference. He says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away, and you go, oh, wait a minute, you've skipped a lot of stuff, Peter. I said, Peter, I'm just giving you the 30,000-foot view. I'm not John. John likes to give you all the detail, right? In fact, you see this uh, chart. I can't get my thing to work. You'll have to put the chart up there for me. Um, you see this chart of the book of Revelation. And, you can, and he lays out all the details. And I added Daniel in there and Matthew to get the 75 more days there. But here's the book of Revelation. And he talks in detail, 21, 22 chapters about all that's coming, Right? You know, there's the church age, the seven churches, and then there's the rapture of the church that will be saved from that hour, he says, uh, in chapter uh, four, I believe. Then the tribulation. Most of the book is about the tribulation. If somebody says, hey, we're in the sixth trumpet, uh, you may be, but I'm not because I haven't raptured yet, right? Because we're going to be raptured before the sixth trumpet occurs, so I, I, I can see the details here and, and I see the second coming of, of Jesus that's talked about and then the 75 days and then a thousand year kingdom that he talks about in chapter 20 and then he ends the book with the new heavens and the new earth. You want the long version? Read Revelation. You want the really short version? Read Peter. 
The Lord will come like a thief. Heaven's earth will pass away. I mean, heaven's a new earth. Comes like a thief. That's really talking about the rapture. Every time it talks about a thief coming like a thief, you're looking at the rapture, not the second coming. And so he's saying, here's the beginning and here's the new heavens and new earth. He says, I'm giving you kind of the bookends here. I'm giving you the overall picture. What he's really doing, and you see this in prophecy, even in the Old Testament, where there's a mountain peak and a mountain peak of prophecy, and then there's this valley in between. And the valley in between is a long period of time. You see that in Daniel's 70 weeks. You've got week 69 and week 70, and week 70 is the tribulation. Week 69 uh, 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 is, is, is 2,000 years separated from that. Well, we didn't know there was going to be a 2,000 year period between these two peaks because all Daniel talked about was this peak and that peak. And you look at it this way, it looks like one peak or maybe two peaks. But what you don't see is the valley in between. Peter does the same thing. He shows you the beginning and the end and he holds it this way and you don't see, you see the two peaks, but you don't see this big valley of a seven year tribulation and a thousand year kingdom in between. So he gives you this, this picture. It's going to come like a thief and it's going to end with a, with a roar and we can go back to the standing on the promises. I can't get there. Um, it says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We've got to ask ourselves that question. What am I living for? Who am I living for? We need to ask ourselves the question, am I making excuses like Ravi Zacharias did to salve my pain and I'm justifying my actions? Or am I going to live for him? I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to, because essentially what Ravi's saying is I believe this promise that, the promise that promises freedom through sensuality. And that's not true. It's easy for us to fall into that error, to think that we can salve our pain somehow and that, that that makes it all good, that makes it all go away. And he's going, no, that's not where it's at. Where true life is, is in holiness and godliness. Living with God in view. Living with God in mind. That's where true freedom is. That's where true meaning to life is, is lived that way, where God is involved in everything that we do. And that we wait for those promises of his coming to occur. And while we're waiting, we're living for him. We're sharing our faith, trying to hasten and make it come quicker. And that's why he finishes by saying, that we're waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We want righteousness. We want that which is right to be the order of the day. We pray for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. We want it to be here. We're looking for that time when righteousness will dwell. We'll be those who, if we live that way, are living like Hebrews 11, where they were looking for the city on a hill. They were looking for the city that was going to be a city of righteousness that God had prepared for them, it says. 
So we got to ask ourselves the question, how shall we then live? In light of the second coming of Jesus, and it is going to happen as surely as creation happened, as surely as the flood happened, it's going to come. All the prophets talked about it, and all the things the prophets have said have come true. That Jesus did come, that Jesus did die for us, that Jesus is coming is still yet to be fulfilled. So how shall we then live? We all have a choice to make. Do I live for Greg? Not you live for Greg, but me live for Greg. Or do I live in holiness and godliness? Do I stop making excuses? Do I stop believing that sensuality is the, the, way, the path to freedom? And I live in light of what Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died to change our world. He died to make everything different. He died to set everything in motion. He died to fulfill the prophecies about his first coming. And he's ready to come a second time. Lord, we can't wait for that to happen. We want it to happen quickly. We want it to be hastened. And we are a part of that hastening by sharing our faith. Lord, we don't confess to understand some of the aspects of it, some of the details of it. But Lord, we don't pray it for escape, although we would like to escape some things in this world. And we pray it because we want to see what you have for us, this new heavens and new earth, but we pray that those who don't know you yet would come to know you. Those who need to respond to your invitation of grace would respond. Lord, we ask for that to happen. We know that that's why you're being patient and we thank you that it's because of your love that's driving that, not our impatience demanding that, that you wait. You will come when the time is right. And so Lord Jesus, we look to you Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying in our place. Can't wait to see you when you come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.